Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and its new movie adaptation. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. Find even more book reviews, teaching ideas, and secondary ELA resources at teachnouvelle.com. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, and so you can stick around even if you haven't checked out the novel or movie yet. I'm Amanda Thrasher. And I'm Danielle Hall, an 8th and ninth grade English teacher, and I blog at teachnouvelle.com. We are joined today by Bookstagrammers Courtney from Coco Chasing Adventures and Anna from Hanaya 7. Welcome back, friends. Hi. Hi. Glad to be back. Courtney and Anna joined us on our most popular episode ever, number nine, Children of Blood and Bone. So it's really great to have you back. Y'all probably didn't know those stats, but it's like still a well-listened-to episode. And of course, you you were on Monday's Not Coming, another book that made us cry. In the Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, 16-year-old star witnesses the murder of her unarmed friend Khalil at the hands of a white police officer. In the aftermath, she must balance the expectations of her black neighborhood, Garden Heights, with her predominantly white private school, Williamson. Star wants justice for Khalil, but she's scared that what she might say could bring trouble to her neighborhood or to her family. Can Star overcome her fear and make her voice her most powerful weapon? So I read this novel when it first came out, and it was incredible. I mean, it's one of those books that after you finish reading, you start pushing into people's hands and start being a weird person at parties because you get like evangelical for it. And so I didn't have super high expectations for the movie because I'm always kind of disappointed by movie adaptations, but I was so pleasantly surprised. They did such a good job. I thought it was a really amazing movie. Even if you hadn't read the book, I feel like it kept a lot of the richness of the story without flattening it out too much. How about you, Anna? What did you think? I honestly didn't have very high expectations. That's how I am when it comes to book and movie adaptations. Right. Yeah. Um, I got to admit, I chickened out when I first walked up to the movie theater. Like, my intention was to see the film. And I bought my ticket and I just stood there. Like, I don't know what kind of fear came over me or what I was expecting. But I I couldn't get myself to walk in right away. It took me a few minutes to calm myself down. Because in my head, I sort of kind of knew, besides, you know, what we read from the book. But it was like, I don't know how it's going to really make me feel because I didn't cry in the book, but this one, the movie made me cry. Courtney, what about you? What did you think of the novel and what kind of expectations did you have? Um, I really enjoyed the book when I read it. I was looking forward to the movie, actually. The trailer was very gripping and then there was a lot of press that was done. I was really excited to see Amanda in the movie. Um, I heard there was a lot that she has done for... Uh, Black rights or civil rights. So I was excited to see the movie. Yeah, me too. I I follow Angie Thomas on Instagram and she's, um you know, done a lot of this stuff like in production and she was on set and she shouted out cast members. And so I had a lot of expectations going into the movie. So I was definitely excited about that. Uh, I cried during the novel, so I figured I would cry a lot during the movie and totally did. I cried the whole time. Which is okay because I, I like saw an interview with Amanda and she said her whole goal was to make white people cry. So <laughs> I'm white. I cried. <laughs> so I guess she won. She won. Yes, Congratulations. <laughs> there you go. That's the whole thing. It's done. You can just retire, Amanda. Just oh, please kidding. don't. Please don't. Please be in everything. 
So this movie was directed by George Tillman Jr. and adapted for screen by Audrey Wells. And it stars, as we mentioned, Amanda Stenberg as Star, Russell Hornsby as Maverick, and Regina Hall as Lisa. We also get performances by Issa Rae, Anthony Mackie, and the very charming, very brief light of Algie Smith. I just enjoyed him at playing Khalil. When you see this beautiful, handsome young man with this smile and these dimples, everything about him, it made the character come to life. It made knowing what was going to happen really hard. I mean, when we read the book, we knew what was going to happen. So when I see him in the scene, I immediately begin to tear up and cry because I'm I'm watching sort of like the future of a young Black man, mm. you know, a life taken too quickly. And you're seeing in this moment, he's happy, full of smiles, flirting, dancing, and, and making Star um, happy in a way that she kind of forgot she had. And then, of course, we know what happens next. Yeah. And they extend that scene beyond what it is in the book. Like, it, it becomes a, a much lengthier conversation in the car. It's just real sad. I think one thing that was really hard for me, I went to see this with my husband and, you know, he has not read the book and I didn't really tell him what was going to happen. So he, he really kind of went in there completely cold and I like regret not telling him because he was not prepared for that. Um, But when I saw him, I saw a kid that could look like my son. Yeah. I took my daughter and she hasn't read the book either. And I didn't tell her because situations like that, you're surprised. You don't get a, a full warning. So she boohoo cried. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but it's reality. It happens. Yeah, I thought that with the actual shooting, one thing that I thought was really impactful that they did in the movie was they kind of continued the scene. So in the book, it's from Star's perspective. And as soon as Khalil is shot, the scene kind of cuts. And later she mentions the cop also pulled a gun on me. But in the movie, we stay with her like the camera stays with her in the aftermath of watching Khalil die. And I think that, so we've all seen like the videos and I feel like, especially if you're a white person listening to this, like you need to force yourself to watch these videos. They're terrible, but you need to know like what's happening. And I think that a lot of people just choose not to watch this because they don't have to, because it's not happening in their communities and to their families. And I think it's a really good thing to like force the audience's eye to stay here to see this devastation like as it happens absolutely especially because like khalil took a long time to die and so did philando castile and diamond just like sat in that car like with the man she loved and had to like watch that and i mean that's the reality like that's the truth Like, I have seen a lot of one-star reviews of this movie saying that it's propaganda and the police brutality is not a thing, and that is a lie. And police brutality is real, and there are real videos, but if it's a movie about, you know, beautiful 17-year-olds that make you realize that it's the truth, then this movie has served its purpose, I guess. So they did change the way that Khalil was shot. Uh, So in the book, he doesn't reach for anything. He just pokes his head back in the car to ask Star if she's okay. But in the movie, they have him actually reaching for a hairbrush. I wanted to know, what did y'all think of this? I'm not sure how I feel about it. I guess it it worked in the sense of to show 
something so small. Like, it, it, I guess it gave the cop reason to do what he did because his assumption was that he was reaching for a weapon. So it fit, but the situations aren't always like that. So I, I honestly thought it worked. I'm both sided on this issue. I think on one level it worked because it represents every person that does something very small, like reaches for their wallet or reaches for whatever and provides this quote unquote excuse for someone to shoot at them. But in a lot of ways, there are plenty of people who don't do anything, who just exist. Um, And I think they said at the beginning of the movie, but um, it is impossible to be unarmed when you're a black person because your blackness is the weapon or is the thing that's scared of. So I kind of wish he didn't have anything because his very skin, his very nature was was the weapon. It was the thing that the cop was scared of. Um, And so a little bit of it made me feel like that part was a little washed down a little bit. It, It became easier to digest, right? So I'm kind of on both sides of that. That's exactly what I was thinking, Courtney. Like, yes, it does reflect a lot of how it goes. But on the other hand, like, it's not like the cop needed an excuse, you know, when it was just the fact that this was a black boy that made him feel threatened. All right. So on a slightly happier note, I a slightly happier note. <laughs> I was listening to Angie Thomas talk about her process writing this book and how this movie began to take shape. And one thing she said that really struck me was that when she was first writing this book, she saw Amanda Stenberg's video, Don't Cash Crop on My Cornrows. And she looked at Amanda and said, that is who Star needs to be. And so she was writing this book, already picturing Star as the amazing young woman who is Amanda Stenberg. If you haven't seen that video, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. But basically, Amanda is like, an amazing activist. She broke all of our hearts in her portrayal of Rue on Hunger Games. And she is great. She was amazing. I found her so believable, just like her portrayal of not only Star's trauma, but like every time Star smiled, it like, it felt like such a real smile. Like it felt like it was just this nice little moment of peace for her. I thought she was so good. She was so good. I mean, I just love to see her grow as an actress. Because, you know, I'm a little bit older than Amanda. So it's just like I remember her when she was young, when she was grew, and to see her now. So anyways, I think she performed well in this movie. And there was a little bit of controversy, honestly, about her playing this role. But I think she uh, knocked the naysayers out the water. What was the, what was the controversy, Courtney? I didn't know that. So if you see the first cover of the novel and maybe read some of the descriptions in the novel um people saw her as a dark skin or at least a more brown skin character and definitely someone with some kinky hair and afro um and then amanda she she is lighter skin she has more straight hair and so there was some controversy because again it's this idea of making her more digestible but I don't think that's true for her. Like, I don't support that argument, first of all, because it's the sign of colorism, and I don't support that at all. Number two, I think Amanda has earned her stripes as an activist, and I think that, you know, she chooses roles based upon who she is as an actress. She did not go for Black Panther. So I think she was in the running for Shuri, 
And she said, this role is not for me. This role is meant to reflect, you know, the rich melanin that would be present in an African society. And so she did not pursue that role further. I I think that it's more than fair for her to play a girl from California. Like, I think that she played it well. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll return to our discussion on The Hate You Give. The rest of the show will contain spoilers. So if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back. Hey, listener, this is just a quick break to let you know what's coming up next. Next week, we'll be talking about Salt by Hannah Moskowitz. This seafaring adventure features a family of monster hunters, and our conversation is going to be great. You can support us and the author by pre-ordering this book using our affiliate link in the show notes. Happy reading! Welcome back, y'all. We're continuing our discussion on The Hate You Give book and movie. If you haven't read this yet or seen the movie, we want to warn you again that this segment will contain spoilers. Spoilers! All right, so when we're talking about a book versus movie, it's kind of easy to seem like we're being really nitpicky on like what they changed and how those changes impacted the story and stuff like that. But like, if we're not going to talk about that, what are we going to talk about? So let's get nitpicky. I want to talk about Devante's removal from the story because I feel that that was a big, big change. How did y'all feel about that? I did not like that. I like Devante's character. I think he's key to how the story resolves itself and shows a movement in the community to put away their most criminal characters. And so, you know, it's kind of, it was kind of weird to not have him there. Yeah, I I felt that drugs were much more present in the book, like the story of the drugs in the community was much more present in the book than in the movie. And I didn't know why until I reread the book, you know, today. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's because Devante brought a lot of that discussion to the forefront. How about you, Anna? Get nitpicky. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) <laughs> I feel the same way um, th- that Courtney feels. I mean, I read the book back in December last year. I don't know. It was huge to me. Um, in the book that you followed those characters and you saw why what was happening was happening. And without them, it was just like this neighborhood that had drugs and these are the issues. And I, I think they should have had them in there. Yeah. I think that it makes it kind of a bigger victory at the end when King is put away, like having more of like the impact that it had on the neighborhood. I also think that a big reason for that, too, is in the book, you saw how important Maverick was to the community in a way you still saw in the movie, but not nearly to the same extent. Like he gets the other King Lords and the other gang to meet together to like try to work through the riots that happen after the verdict. And I think Devante was a big part of like how you saw Maverick's determination to make the community better and also just his warmth and empathy. Right. I guess one other thing I thought about Devante is that, so you have your infants, you have your babies, you have Sakani and those guys whose future has not been realized. You have 
Khalil who's passed, right? Like, so he's, he's a future that's ended too soon. And then you have Maverick, a guy that sort of had a chance to uh, reinvent himself. He had a chance to reinvent himself. So Devontae kind of represents the kid that can still reinvent himself and still change and turn himself around. So removing him, it it's like, you know, you have seven, but seven is like already kind of good in a way. But Devontae is like the average kid in the ghetto who doesn't get a chance to escape, who still has to figure out how to be right. Um, right. So, so that kind of character, the average black kid in Cali, that kid didn't, it's like he wasn't represented in the movie other than by death. Whew, that was well said. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, just the way she put it, just like, you know what, she's right. Like, he was such an important part of the book. It was just like, why would you not have his character be represented? to all those black kids that are struggling or trying to, you know, make themselves better. Right. Especially because Seven's role was minimized as Mm -hmm. well. So we didn't get, you know, a lot of black boys. We could have had more. There has been some criticism that whereas the book was written by a black woman and the movie was directed by a black man, the screenplay was adapted by a white woman. And some people feel that that changed how the story was told. How do we feel about that? Who were the editors of the book? We don't know who was involved in editing that part. So it could, they could have been black or white. Um, we didn't see the first draft of her book and how these characters were represented and how they would fall through um, throughout the book. So we don't know who the editors were that may have cut out some parts and what took place to put the book together. Um, just because the author is black and the director is black, but it was edited by a white person. I think I, I didn't see it too much being a woman of color. A lot of that stuff that's in the book and which was in the movie plays true to what actually happened. So I don't know. I didn't know that going in, but now that you say it, there was one part of the movie. So it's the change to Chris's character. In the book, this is a conversation that does not happen, but Chris says something about, like, I don't see color, blah, 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 which is, you know, not something he says in the book and obviously garbage, but that conversation felt more artificial to me. Like, it felt like it was like, oh, this is the time where we lecture the white people in the audience that this is a bad way to be. But I think that's because I knew the character of Chris in the book, and so it just felt put in there. Not that I'm saying that that kind of conversation is artificial. That is clearly a conversation that a lot of people have, but it just seemed yeah. a little out of place. I didn't see anything wrong with the screenplay itself. I, I'm sure some things are probably inadvertently not there because she's describing an external experience. But I think that the actors that are there acted them well. They knew the experience. There's the scene at the beginning of the movie where they talk about the conversation and Russell Hornsby, he looked like my father when he started to talk through the characters, you know, the importance of acting a specific way when a cop stops you. And I think Russell brought the character to life. I really liked in that scene too, that they kept in the, uh, the Black Panthers 10 point program. I was worried they were going to cut that out entirely of the movie. And I'm really, really glad they didn't, even though they, they cut out like all of the Malcolm X references. And Black Jesus. And Black Jesus, which was missed, noticed and missed. One thing that was not in the movie, aside from Star kind of scrolling through Tumblr, 
the last page of the book is an opportunity for Star and, you know, by extension, Angie Thomas to say some names. And I would have loved to hear these names in the movie. Didn't Issa Rae say them at some point? Maybe I'm remembering wrong. All I remember is Haley's comment about Emmett Till. Yeah, you wanted to talk about Haley, so let's do that. Let's drag her. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> I think in another episode, I talked about uh, a girl that I went to high school with. Anyways, I've known a couple Haley's in my life. They're always your best friend. They always, hey girl. And then when something happens, it's just like, well, you have to defend the cops because you know their lives matter. Yeah. I'm like, of course I'm going to defend the cops, okay? I, I don't think no one's talking about not defending the cops here. I think we're just talking about the black boys. The Haley character is just, I work with a Haley. Like, I live in a neighborhood with a Haley, you know? Haley is like the girl that everyone knows her. She's popular. She seems liberal and your friend and all those things until it's time to really be down. That is when all of a sudden she don't know what you're talking about and she don't agree and that's not how she was raised. Yeah, Haley's okay to be Black until it's actually time to be Black. It's just hard because as long as there's no issue going on, they seem very supportive and you don't know what they're going to act like until something happens. And at that point, that's when the devastation really happens. It feels like a betrayal because in the moment you need them the most, they're not there. Yes. And I'm not going to get political, but that's a little bit how it feels when there's 54% of women not voting in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not going to say nothing more about that, but that's what that feels like. Yeah. And one of the things that Amanda Stenberg says in her Don't Cash Crop on My Cornrows video, one of the things that she says about cultural appropriation is... Like, all of those people who want to, like, take the elements of Black culture that they think are cool and use them for profit and then turn around and don't stand up and use their voices and their platforms when something happens, like, that's a similar sort of betrayal. I think also one of the really, like, frustrating and real things about the Haley character was when... Star confronted her about it. It was Haley's victimhood that suddenly became centered. How Star asked her, like, what did you mean by that? And Haley's like, how dare you call me racist? Like, how can you be saying this? And it was just so, I was like, oh my God, like, I have sat in this conversation and watched this conversation and had this conversation so many times, like, where people just turn it around and are like, how can you be calling me racist? Like, no. And it's like, I'm just asking you a question for clarification and if you're saying racist things and doing racist stuff like maybe it's something you could consider instead of just leaping to defensiveness if you guys could see me right now like rolling my eyes at situations like that because we see it all the time where it's like they're cool to be your friend they're down for whatever until it's time to like stand up for what's right and you're like you're questioning them it's like well you're calling me a racist well that just came out of your mouth why would you yeah, I mean, and usually, I don't like to mix these topics that often, if I can avoid it, but with trans rights, it's the same thing, right? Right. Everyone is so cool and whatever, whatever, but then when it's time to, like, stand up for trans rights or, or just LGBT rights, they don't have nothing to say. I just, I resent that because it gives people around you a false sense of security. I believe you're my friend. I believe that you care about me and you believe in my best interests. Because if I believe you and I and I wanted the best for you, I'd fight for you. Because if I don't fight for you, 
And maybe you don't have it to fight by yourself because people will, may not agree, but the world changes not by just the minority. The minority needs help from the majority. That's how things happen. Uh, you need allies. And the worst thing to find out is your ally is not your ally. That is devastating. Yeah. And I think, like, Courtney, you talked about how there was a criticism of the book that Chris, for as cool as he was, was, like, too cool and too romanticized with their relationship. I think that the movie did a really great job of making Chris, like, fine just fine, but with stuff to learn. And I think that that amplified Haley's terribleness because right like Haley's an avatar for white fragility and white supremacy and I think that it's important for that to be like brought out in the movie that that's the problem and I think you know another thing that was stripped of Haley in the movie that I thought was great is that like in the book Star has a lot of emotional baggage with Haley. Like they both lost people at the same time and it made, it made them have a really strong bond and the movie dropped that. And I loved that because it made Haley worse. (laughs) Haley needed to be bad, right? There needed to be no excuses for Haley. I agree. Totally. I feel bad for the actress because now I don't like her. I'm like, I don't know what role. (laughs) So that's a, it's a place where I think the screenwriter had an advantage because she knows the Haley. Haley might be her sister. It might be whatever. And so, so now she can she can write a Haley. We're sorry to all the people whose name is Haley. <laughs> <laughs> They're doomed for life. <laughs> you know what I really like we could talk about is the scene in the movie with Carlos and Star in the kitchen when there's the two perspectives. I thought that was an interesting conversation. I really liked that conversation. It changed the character of Carlos a lot from the book, um, because in the book, one of the things Carlos says to Star is that I do know that I would not have shot Khalil. But in the movie, Carlos is pointing out all of the different things that go through a cop's mind and all these kinds of things. And then when Star asks if he would have shot Khalil, he says, I don't know. And I, I thought it was a really great change because I think that it showed that even though Carlos was a person of color in a police force... Like, it is still fundamentally, in a lot of ways, a system that's built on oppression. And even though he's a person of color who was raised in the black community, it's not necessarily changing that. He's still, like, a force of, in a lot of ways, white supremacy. And I think that was really important because there are times where it's not necessarily a white cop who shot a black kid. It's, it was a Latino cop or a black cop or something else, but it doesn't change the fact that like all of these shootings are a part of this greater system that is designed to over-police black communities. Again, it's about the system. I mean, it's about the training. Like, start asking, what if Khalil was driving a Mercedes and he was in a rich neighborhood, would you have shot him? And that, to me, is very, it's about what you're trained to see as what threatening looks like. So it's not just the skin, it's the community. It's who he was as a person. Everything about who Google was was something to be threatened by. That's scary to me. Because what that tells me is that my son, who's 16, who will not drive a brand new car, will be driving in some neighborhood with his hoodie on or whatever clothes he's going to have on. And because he's not the right level of respectability, he may be deemed as threatening. That's a scary thing for me. 
I just keep thinking about like Khalil is my son, you know, that my son is going to turn four years old. And I think about Tamir Rice, like how old was Tamir Rice? 12. You know what I'm saying? Like these are, these are children, you know, and again, I'm not going to get political, but you know, we easily will forget the crimes of other kids, but my child may not get a second chance. He may only have that one chance, you know? Kids are kids. They're going to do things that are not right. They're going to do things that are bad. But, you know, kids get second chances. But, you know, little black kids don't get second chances. Khalil didn't get a second chance, you know. I think about that because, you know, Kavanaugh got a second chance. The influenza kid gets another chance. The kid in Stanford got another chance because 20 minutes of a bad decision didn't change his life. But it could change mine. That's what the system represents. That's what I see in the system. Got me all teared up, girl. <laughs> it's it's a horrible fear. Like it's a horrible reality that no parent and no kid should have to live through. But those who are privileged don't understand is that we parents of color, this is you know, you you teach your child how to walk and talk and read and you think, you know, it's pretty much done. Now we're teaching them how to um, be careful when, when you're talking to a cop or try not to look suspicious. Like these are the things that we teach our kids. Like those who are privileged don't understand what we go through. I think about that first scene in the movie when they're learning that conversation. And I just think about how many times that I've had that conversation, how many times that I still have that conversation and what, at what age am I going to have that conversation with my own son? That's crazy to me. It is not 1965. It's 2018, but I'm still going to have the same conversation that was given to me when I was a child. So I think that the importance of this movie for white people is to bring those things that y'all have been saying for, you know, centuries to god i don't even know how to end this episode y'all like your voices and like your perspective deserves to be amplified and i don't know how we go to end music from here see the movie read the book have a conversation support the causes open your eyes be an ally there's a thing that's like the next level up from ally accomplice have you heard this be an accomplice I have not, but I like I it. I have not, yeah. It, it's like, go go be disruptive. Go yes. throw some tear gas canisters. So that's our show for today, friends. Remember, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. And thank you so much to our guests, Courtney and Anna. Go find them on Instagram. We will leave their um, handles in. Do people say handles anymore? Is that over? I don't know. <laughs> what the kids are saying. <laughs> what are the kids saying these days? Uh, but go find their info and their links in our show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love hearing from you. Happy reading.